Hey, Space fans, we've launched a brand new Twitter handle, at LMSpace, devoted fully to giving you exclusive access to the Lockheed Martin products and missions you love. Welcome to Lockheed Martin Spacemakers, the podcast that takes you out of this world for an inside look at some of our most challenging and innovative missions. My name is Ben, and I'll be your host. In Season 2, we explore Lockheed Martin's bold new vision of a future we call Space 2050. We partnered with our Advanced Technology Center to bring you an inside look at the innovations and technologies we are developing to make that future a reality. Because getting there is just the beginning. From distant outposts on Mars to colonies living on the moon and smart cities here on Earth, we will need artificial intelligence to help make it all work. AI will shape our future and may even fundamentally change how we work and engage with society. My colleague Natalia Oleksik takes a closer look at why AI will play a critical role in everything we do in space, from human colonies on the moon to trade routes to Mars. So I'm sitting down with Dr. Steve Girali. Steve, could you tell us your name and your title, please? Sure. My name is Dr. Stephen Girali. My title is a chief architect for our Space Byte Group, which stands for Business Innovation, Transformation, and Enterprise Excellence. It's part of our kind of IT innovation arm. We're here to talk about transformation and where you're taking that for the future of space and everything that you're working on where we anticipate revolutionary changes to how we not just go there, but work up there and develop a new space economy. Can you tell us a little bit about the hurdle in integrating artificial intelligence into our space exploration? And once we overcome that hurdle, what it means for humankind? Yeah, I, you know, I think the biggest hurdle for any new technology is how well do we adapt it and how do we integrate it with our human counterparts where it actually acts as a way of helping the humans do what they need to do and do it better. Um, and not necessarily always taking all the actions on behalf of the human. So uh, oftentimes people think of automation and they think, oh, we got to automate the job. It's got to be 100% computer. And oh, we got to find ways where we're symbiotic, where both the human and the computer can work together to get the best out of what both offer in the business as a whole. And so uh, when it comes to the whole AI side, it's really what are the right level of use cases where we do a lot of manual effort, where we can help automate that for the end user where they don't have to do the things that they don't want to do. So oftentimes I use the term practice versus process. If you think about a doctor's office, right? A doctor's there, they have their practice, right? They're there to have patients, they're there there to help the patients, but there's a process that they have to go through in order to make that happen. They have to be able to work with insurance companies, they have to be able to work with providers, they have to work with pharmacies and so on and so forth. That's not necessarily all the work that they want to do. They really want to focus in on the patient care and what they got to do to help the patient. It's the same thing with the folks working in space. They want to focus on the science. They want to focus on the important things of the mission and not have to do the mundane things that just don't take a lot of, like they take a lot of energy, but they don't actually produce a lot of value. And so it's finding that right level of engagement that we want to have with those teams. What kind of technologies are we developing here at Lockheed Martin that based on AI that will help do that? 
so some examples here are uh, some of the telemetry processing that we're doing. So oftentimes, if you think of telemetry coming off the spacecraft, a lot of data, very voluminous, a lot of velocity. And oftentimes it's, well, how do you find the needles in the haystack? How do you find the things that, ooh, this is important, I should pay attention to it? Or we have a problem here, we should go look into it more. And so what we're doing is we're developing AI solutions. There's an effort, an umbrella effort that we call Titori, which basically says we're going to create a set of algorithms that are going to help our operations team in mission basically pinpoint anomalies, pinpoint issues, help with tracking, help with isolation, help with effectively finding that needle in the haystack and being able to tell you what's the root cause of it. Is it because we don't have enough power? Is it because we don't have enough propellant? Is it because we don't have enough whatever the answer is, right? And so... Uh, a lot of these algorithms, they, there's different types of machine learning algorithms. The one that we use is an unsupervised machine learning algorithm. What we do is we feed it nominal data, how the system should be behaving under normal conditions. And then the algorithm itself starts to pick up on anything that's abnormal. And over time can effectively tell the end user, okay, this is anomalous. This isn't what we typically see. And oh, by the way, we saw this thing go off and these other 10 telemetry values go off as well. So somewhere within that realm, we got something that's not right. So we can at least pinpoint out of hundreds or thousands of telemetry points, what are the things you should be looking at? And so we're building out algorithms to kind of support that level of effort. Those algorithms will be essential for Artemis missions and Orion, essential for protecting astronauts' lives, and essential for eventually helping us build colonies on the moon and beyond. How trustworthy are they? So there's a lot of things when it comes to trust and AI. If you feed it bad data, it can develop a personality of its own. So for instance, oftentimes, I think this was actually in Amazon's case, they were helping the police departments determine criminals or bad folks. And they oftentimes would give pictures of only a certain character type of person, maybe a certain race, a certain sex, whatever, what forth. And what ends up happening is the algorithms don't know any better. The way that we program these AI algorithms is different than we program a system. Typically in a system, we're sending the business logic, the business rules, and all the underlying endpoints. With AI, we're actually sending the algorithms with training data. So if I give it a bunch of data and it's all men and it's all white men, the algorithm is going to be more poised to identify white men than anything else, right? So the question really becomes, how do we make sure that our data is broad, it's diversified, so that it actually includes all the different possible conditions that we kind of run into so that we can build the trustworthiness? And I'll give you a good example. In our supply chain group, if you think about Lockheed Martin Space, 70% of the cost of the makeup of the satellite is built in our supply chain. Now, here's the issue. We have to take a lot of parts in. And in order to do all that system integration, we're going to know when all the parts will arrive. And so we were building out machine learning algorithms that effectively would predict the lead time, how long it would take for the parts to come in. And we had to build trust with the folks that were ordering the parts that they'd feel comfortable with what we were giving them. So if Amazon tells you it's two days, sometimes it's two days, sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's kind of all over the place. It's the same thing with the parts that we get. So the question becomes is how do we gain that trust for the end user? And so they wanted to be more involved in that process. So what we end up doing is kind of a man in the middle where we provide predictions and then we ask the end user, how accurate is that prediction? Did we hit it? Did we not hit it? 
You know, what do you think uh, things look like? In fact, you'll see that in a lot of AI systems out there today. Like if you use your Alexa and you ask her a question, she'll say, did I get it right? Was this helpful? And it's really just trying to help build that model for, yes, this is good data. This was a good result so that we can keep tagging and promoting the right data and build what people would consider to be a truthful model of what real really is. Is the system of AI ever perfecting? Is there ever, are there ever enough data points to make you feel comfortable that our programs are protected, our astronauts in space are perfected, or is it an ever-perfecting process? Yeah, it's definitely a process. It's something where we get better each and every day, but we're not on the order of being 100% perfect in anything that we do. We are human. We do make issues. We tag things wrong. We train things incorrectly. We do a whole host of things that could always be better. The question is, how do we get more and more along that line of accuracy where it's it's good enough to meet the mission's need and it's confident enough that even if we were to get it slightly wrong, it doesn't cause harm or issue to the astronaut or others around them and kind of moving forward. So definitely kind of a growing space. And oftentimes we talk about the accuracy of our models. So we will predict what our models should be. So in that lead time example I gave you, we'll say it's going to take you 10 days to get in. And if it comes in 11 days, we're a little bit off. Well, okay, let's figure out how off we were. And then over time, you know, the goal is how do we get better and better at those predictions? How do we, for certain providers, we know they're going to deliver relatively on time. They're going to be stable. It's going to be good. For others, it may be wildly different. And it may be different based off the parts. Some parts are more complex than others. So sometimes a very complex part may take a lot longer for it to come in versus a more simpler part. So anyways, our goal is really just to work on the algorithms, get them to provide as best accuracy as we can. We don't really, we're not shooting for 100%, but we're shooting for as accurate as we can get in order to deliver the result for the mission. So not shooting for 100% on the ground, supply chain, never able to guarantee 100% in space, human space flight, human space exploration. What do you do with that uncertainty? Is, do you ever anticipate getting 98% certainty, or, or is that all part of exploration, which is taking a chance? Yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes to humans, you want it to be as solid as you possibly can, right? And certainly, if there's any failure, that you have redundancy in those failure conditions so that you can support the mission, support the astronaut, support whoever you're helping. There is always going to be a certain amount of data. You asked about, well, when you have lots of data and it's voluminous and it's coming at you, how do you deal with it? And in some cases, if the data is so large and you're not processing it fast enough, it's already too late. It's already passed. There's nothing we're going to do about that. Got to move on to the next one or the next one or the next one. So really what it comes down to is what's the minimum amount of data that we need in order to make the best prediction at the best time and give the best result that we can to whoever needs it, whether it's an astronaut, whether it's an operator on the ground, whether it's anybody you know trying to support the mission. How do we make strategic decisions with data? You talked about telemetry. What other types of data can we get from space that help us make strategic decisions? Yeah, so I'll give you another good example. In the space of IoT, of Internet of Things, we have sensors. These sensors are picking up things. And typically you have actuators. These are actually doing something based off of some sensor that they're picking up on. So, for instance, I always tell people, think about your house. You have your thermostat. It's reading the temperature. When the temperature gets below a certain level, okay, we want to turn up the heater. Or if it gets too high, we want to turn on the uh, cooling. 
And it's the same thing here in the space side. We have sensors that are actually picking up all sorts of different things. It could be imagery. Like, for instance, we have imagery of solar flares that are happening with the sun. Uh, and they happen all the time. But there are certain ones that we're looking for and that we want to see. So rather than a human having to sit there and watch hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of video, if we can train an algorithm that can actually do that on their behalf, find the ones, the segments that we really care about, and then be able to pinpoint where in those videos they occurred, now we're saving that individual lots of time. Or they can go, hey, I know there's a solar flare here at minute five, minute six, minute eight, and they're skipping all the rest and all the stuff that doesn't matter to them. And really, it's, it's about when we have all these sensors at our disposal, we get overwhelmed with all the data. That happens, you know, in space. It also happens when we get into battle management systems and we're trying to uh, isolate and figure out, okay, what's really happening in this given space. And so we have examples like that. We also have examples like where we are looking on Earth with like pictures of what's happening on the planet. And in fact, we've done applications for a group called Help Now, which effectively was how do we take a look at disaster recovery initiatives with the Red Cross where maybe a bridge is blown out and we can't deliver food or water or whatever, humanitarian relief to the folks that need it. The more that we can kind of look at all the sensor data that we have, whether it's digital data, whether it's imagery, whether it's any of these things, make sense of it and redirect our assets in a way that's actually going to help the mission. That's really what's going to help win the day. So in the example of Help Now, we actually you know, worked with the Red Cross. We developed an application that effectively took a lot of the imagery that comes off of our satellites, helps them to plan the future for how they're going to attack disasters, and then use that information to then go and execute. And it also includes, well, how do you plan and manage your resources, right? So we have human resources. We have cars and trucks and all these other things. There's only so many more resources that we have. Where do we apply them to get the best optimization out of them? So what are the high value targets? How do we optimize around that and kind of support it? So I would say there's, there's stuff in space that we deal with. There's stuff on the ground that we deal with. There's all these different mission components. But at the end of the day, it's how do you make the best sense of it, optimize to help whoever the customer is in solving their needs. Will that always require a ground-based station? Or is there a way that astronauts can be trained to be the key decision makers based on the data? So I think what you're seeing here, especially as we go to Mars and other places, right, is that the amount of time that it takes in order to send data back to Earth to get processed, to deliver results, it's not going to work for us as we get further out, right? And so that's where edge processing really kind of comes in. So some of the things that we've been working on is how do we create a constellation of satellites that effectively can communicate with one another in a swarm-like effect, meaning if we need more computing power, they can join the swarm. If we don't need as much computing power, they can drop off the swarm. Or go to sleep. Or, or go rest. to sleep, exactly. And the whole point of it is for a lot of those astronauts, they're going to have to do processing at the edge. We have to be able to provide them the compute infrastructure that they need when they eventually get to Mars and be able to kind of orbit around and give them answers that they require. Because if they have to send it all back to Earth, it's going to take too long, too much time, too much energy, too much effort. We'll never get there. So we have to find ways of how do we empower them when they're out there and give them the infrastructure that they need. We're paving new roads, right? Jeff Bezos would always say, 
when he was setting up Amazon, he could sit on the backs of giants, right? He could literally, he didn't have to go and invent FedEx or UPS or any of these things, right? He could use them in order to deliver what he needed. That was already figured out. He didn't need credit card systems or payment systems to manage that. It was already there. The infrastructure was there. Right. So the question is, how do we build the infrastructure for the astronauts in Mars, on the lunar components, on all these different areas to give them the compute that they need, the sensors that they need, the stuff that they need to be successful. And if we have time dimensions that are relatively small, we have to get to more and more of that edge processing to give the power to them right then and there so they can make effective decisions and not always have to ship it all back to us. And we have to be very particular about the data that we're looking at. How do you get the least amount of data that's required in order to do the job. Because like I said, you can become overwhelmed with all the data that's out there and go through analysis paralysis and not make decisions and everything else. So it's really kind of just focusing, you know, where you want to put your energy and your effort. You talked about paving new roads and you talked about swarms of satellites. Do you see a time at which point they will become autonomous enough to pave their own roads up in space to be, for example, a spacecraft is or spaceship is here. Here are where the humans are. Let's go to them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're already close, right? So you have computer vision, which effectively is a way of taking images and video and being able to identify what's in that image or that video. So today we actually do that for some of our production operations. So think of our high bays where we're actually building out the satellites. We have folks, there can only be a certain amount of folks that can actually be on the platform. So we actually have cameras set up to watch and make sure we have no more than a certain amount of folks or we notify people. It's the same concept. We'd be having some type of imagery being collected by the satellite. We can adjust the actuators of that satellite to go to different sections, different orbits, different locations, different whatever, to follow the tracking and do what we needed to do in order to meet the mission. And so the end goal really is, you know, how do we prepare the algorithms in such a way that we can plan for how we want to execute that resource at a given time. So absolutely, can we, uh, I mean, we already have autonomous driving. I mean, look at what we have with uh, Tesla and other cars, Mm -hmm. where literally the edge processor is sitting on the actual car, looking at imagery in real time, making decisions. And mind you, this isn't, I mean, driving is a complex system, but there's only like four you know, rules of the road, right? It's Don't hey, hit other people. Exactly. Don't hit other people. Use your use your indicators to indicate which way you're gonna go. Make sure you stop, make sure you follow the speed limit. Like it's there's not a lot of rules to it, but at the end of the day it works, right? And we have to develop those same sets of rules when it comes to how do we want the satellites to work, to function, to manage and what mission are they going after and how can we adapt them to meet that mission. But you're talking about two different things in some ways, and that is when you say there are only a couple of fundamental rules about driving on Earth, that incorporates a human brain with human intuition. And what you're talking about in space are swarms of satellites, different missions perhaps. One of them might be to support an Orion going to Mars, and another one might be to support a GO satellite bringing data back to the ground. But there's no human intuition involved. Is that concerning? Because human intuition often fills in the gap between what you know and what might happen. Well, so that's where I think you got to get the best of both worlds, where you got to interact the humans with the algorithms and until you build the confidence. And eventually once you've built the confidence and people go, oh yeah, this algorithm, 98% of the time it hits the mark. I don't need to pay attention to it anymore, right? And even if it were to miss, 
here's what the effect of that missing is. It doesn't mean we're going to lose the asset. It doesn't mean we're going to lose the mission. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means, okay, we're going to have a little flubber here. It's not the end of the world. We'll learn, we'll move on. And, you know, I think over time, we just work to identify which tasks should be human-based, where the intuition is absolutely needed and vital and supportive, and which of those things are things where, well, you know, the computer can figure it out. Like, tactically, the computer can go, if we're driving, okay, I know what the speed limit is. I know there's nobody in front of me. I know there's nobody on the sides of me. I can go forward. Okay, fine, go forward, right? And don't get me wrong, in any of those systems today, the human is actually the intuitive part of that Tesla driving system. They don't just say, oh, no, no, just go ahead and let it do its own thing. We've had people do that, and it makes terrible mistakes. It's harmed people. It's harmed property. It's harmed lots of things. And the human's there to try and add the intuition, but the problem is when the human turns off and the human goes, oh, well, I got that notification three or four times, and I didn't have to do anything, so now I'm not going to pay attention to it. And in fact, I'm not paying attention to any of the notifications you give me. I've just been, you've alarmed me too much. I don't care. And we're just going to go forward. And and hopefully 98% of the time we'll get there. But the 2% can be bad. Mm -hmm. And it's because we didn't think through that whole problem set of, okay, how do you not, you know, alarm the person so much that they just turn off and now they're not even involved in the whole solution. It's kind of like checklists. If you think about checklists, what does it do? It turns off the brain. Why does it turn off the brain? All I got to do is go through my checklist. Oh, checklist one, two, three, four. I did them all. I'm good. Well, it's fine when you want to perfect process and you know the process is solved and everything else, but a lot of the stuff that we do in space, yes, there's process, but there's some amount of experimentation. There's some amount of exploration and other things that we're not going to really know until we get out there and we try it, which means that the human still has to be involved in all of this. And we got to know that you know you can't just always turn off the human element. The human element is actually can be quite helpful to the overall system. So what you're saying is data is not going to solve all, all our problems. It's important to have people up there. Yes. And of all the technologies we're developing, all of the data AI technologies we're developing to support that, are there any that excite you more than others? Oh, uh, there's there's a lot that excite me. Let's talk about a few of those. (laughs) So uh, I'll be honest with you. When it comes to the power of data, we've not even come close to it, right? We are just at our infancy of being able to collect, store, understand, interpret, and take decisions, proper decisions against all that data. If you think about it, when we fly an aircraft, let's say the F-35, for example, uh, what do we do? We slap a hard drive in it. We fly the plane from point A to point B. When it comes back, we download all the data off the bird because it's so much data. And then it takes a long time to process. Well, none of that stuff is in real time, right? And one of the things that we've been talking about, and actually there's a great book, it's called The Kill Chain, and it's by Christian Bros. And it's really, how do you go from sensor to actuator to actual attack and actual elimination of an enemy component, right? And they refer to that time as the kill chain, from the time that you identify something to the time that you actually take some action and you've actually neutralized the problem. And they want to try and get that time to be smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, as we all know, sometimes the data is not good. And when the data is not good, we make really bad decisions. And when we make those poor decisions, it has big impacts, both to civilians, to all sorts of folks. But one of the things that it's teaching is this concept of net-centric warfare, which we've had for 10 or 20 years. 
But really what Christian talks about in his book is often the customer wants to buy the next platform and the next platform. So I go from an F-16 to an F-22 to an F-35, and I'm just buying bigger and bigger platforms. But really the power is in the data. It's in how do I integrate all these systems? So my F-35 talks to my satellites, which talks to my ground stations, which talks to my battle systems, which talks to my troops, which talks to all these folks. And we refer to that as joint operations. It's part of our 21st Yep. It's part of our 21st century warfighter, right? And it's how do we take all of that data and make sense of it so that the warfighter has exactly what they need when they need it and that they get in an amount of time that it actually can be useful, that they can do something with that data. Oftentimes, uh, sometimes the data comes in late. It's already too late. We can't do anything with it. It's useless. Other times, there's so much data, we can't capture it all. We just go after the big things, the big hitters, right? So I think the, the best thing that we can do is continue to work on our data dexterity and how we collect the data, manage it, synthesize it, understand it, take actions on it, and continually improve upon that. And I, in the kind of space as a whole, they refer to that as the data fabric. How do you bring all that data together, provide the tools, the algorithms, and when we talk about AIML, there's this whole concept of a marketplace, which is to say the same way you buy an application on your phone is the same way you can buy an algorithm from an algorithm marketplace. So if today you want anomaly detection, great, here's an algorithm for that. If tomorrow you want to do predictions on something like predict my lead times or predict whatever or my defect rates or whatever, okay, here's an algorithm for that. And so what ends up becoming is this whole ecosystem where folks can very quickly build end-to-end solutions for their end customers. But if you have garbage data, you're going to get garbage results. So you got to have really, really good data. You got to make sure that you use the right algorithms for the right job. And that we have ways of combining all of that data to get a single integrated picture of what's happening. So we can make the warfighter know, hey, this is your best option. And at the end of the day, the warfighter still has to use their brain. They still have to go, that makes sense to me. I see what's going on. Yes, let's go forward. You're talking about data as a service, and that's for defense and keeping our customers secure, but also as a service to help Earth, correct? Bringing it down to Earth to help us with crop prediction, maybe biometrics, things like that. All of that takes processors, and where are they in this mix? Yeah, well, as far as the compute goes, the compute is kind of all over the place, right? We have compute in public cloud providers like Amazon, Azure, GCP, you name it, there's different kind of cloud vendors out there that provide the level of compute that you need that you can grow on demand as you require. There's stuff that we have on-premise that we deploy ourselves, that we manage ourselves. And it's the combination of that infrastructure that we use to kind of pull in the data that that we're looking at. So for instance, if you're looking at, we talk about it as helping Mother Earth, but effectively we want to know where do we want to plant all of our plants and other types of things, we oftentimes will use these processing units in order to kind of say, okay, well, how much precipitation do we get? What's the cloud cover look like? How much sunshine? What's the average humidity, the temperature? How do these crops typically you know, work in a given region? So then we can basically say, okay, and, and oftentimes you've got to circulate your crops kind of all over the place. And, and not only that, but then you also get into the whole aspect of when you get into cities of farming, vertical farming, because now we don't have a lot of space just on the ground. we got to create vertical components where we can actually grow things in buildings and along. I, it was interesting. It was actually at uh, Detroit plant for Ford. It's called Greenfield. And anyways, if you look at all their buildings, 
at the very top of the building, they have a bunch of plants, a bunch of like just, you know, uh, oh, we're growing corn over here. We're growing uh, other stuff over there. Yeah. And we're asking them, well, why are you guys doing that? And they said, well, actually, it keeps the temperature of the building lower, right? And not only that, but then we also get the benefit of, you know, we we get the crop off of it as well, right? And so what I would tell you is I I think we got to think of different ways that we attack problems. And Sometimes they may be a little bit different than what we expect. We oftentimes kind of think, oh, well, no, it's going to have to be in some rural community. That's where we're going to grow all of our crops. And there's no benefit of trying to do it in the city. And it's like, well, no, think about other ways where large, like if you go to Singapore or other places, they grow all their stuff. They just do it vertically, you know, in their given regions. And so what I would tell you is that when we're trying to process the problem and trying to break it up, we'll need some level of compute to make that happen. And whether it's in our own data centers, whether it's using public data centers, whether it's using shared data centers from other teams or other groups or communities, we have to kind of bring that all together and integrate it and make sure that we can kind of show what that end result's gonna look like and be. And all of that begs the question, security. Data is a universal language, correct? So we have this proprietary data that helps allies and customers flourish in their goals, but currently we do live in a contested world. And how do we keep this data secure? What do you see in the future for that? Yeah, so there's different types of security that we have out there today. So we have security for data that's in transit when it's going from one system to another system. We have encryption, which is for data that's at rest. And, you know, when you think about the security of these things, we have to know that the parts and materials that we're using on spacecraft are authentic. They're not fabricated parts. They're not things that are going to hurt the astronaut or other folks because there's a lot of fake parts or counterfeit parts that are out there. And so there's work that's happening a lot in the blockchain area in order to help with our supply chain so that where that part has been, all the different facets that went into it, what parts were used, who manufactured them, who tested them, when did they do it? And it's basically creating this digital ledger of all the transactions that happen against that part. So by the time the part arrives to you and you install it in your finished product, you can feel confident, yes, it hasn't been manipulated, changed, any of those things. We feel confident that part is really what that part is. And then on top of that, as we're collecting data off of it, we're saving that data, we're protecting that data. Because at the end of the day, there's some data that we care about that's part of our intellectual property. For those things that we want to be able to store and protect, we'll do that. There's other data out there that we produce for NASA and others where they want to share the data. They want to make it available to anybody and everybody, whether it's imagery, whether it's anything else, in which case, you know, we got to provide mechanisms so that they can share that with their community members. So no matter what, there's some cases where there's a need to share. There's some cases where there's a need to know. Sometimes there's cases where it's a need to protect. So you kind of have to look at what each of those kind of problem areas are and kind of go, okay, well, which one do I need to use here? Which tool am I using to meet the need? And so let's fast forward to the future and you have swarms of satellites that are following spaceships as they go to Mars or they're tending to structures on the moon and helping repair buildings, things like that. And they get hacked and they no longer work. How do you protect against that? Yeah, well, so I'll give you a good for instance with our factories that we have today. So we have our intelligent factory effort where we're actually bringing online digital equipment that does both the manufacturing and the quality checks for any of the parts that we build internally ourselves. And you have to have some way of being able to quality 
verify and checked to make sure that it actually built what you wanted, right? And so what we typically do is we isolate that environment from everything else in the network so that we're lowering the attack surface. So if, if somebody wants to try and attack it, okay, well, we've very specifically restricted it to just one spot, one area, one level of effort in our network. We typically firewall these things and make sure that only, only the folks that need to connect to them can connect to them. Now, if somebody were to hack in and actually get access to that unit and they're manufacturing parts, could they add something else? Well, absolutely. And if you have no way of validating or verifying that the finished product meets the need, that they didn't like, you know, totally rearrange the design and now there's a structural defect and now we're not going to be able to hit some of our thermal projections or some of our weight restrictions or whatnot, then yeah, we have a problem. And so oftentimes it's just as important in the way that we manufacture things as the way that we test and quality verify those things. And you have to have a full cycle system that lets you know, hey, we created it, somebody validated it, and now we can apply it. And making sure that whoever has been in the system, you know who did it, when they did it, why they did it, all those things. And if you see things that that look wrong, then we have to go in there and, and go, well, did somebody attack the system? Did somebody come in and adjust or change? And if you think about the same stuff that we do here on Earth for manufacturing, we're going to have to do up in space. So whether we're on the moon and we're taking you know material off the moon or off of an asteroid or anything else to build parts and material, we're going to have to have that same mindset. And a lot of those systems are going to have to be closed. So where today, you know, they just sit in open air and they're in a factory and they work fine. You put them in space, they're going to operate completely differently because people didn't plan for it being a space-based manufacturing component. So we have to figure out, okay, well, can we create a closed system where these things can work? And it, when they have problems, are they serviceable? Which components are serviceable? Which ones aren't? How do we recycle those components? Because... You know, it's not like sustainability. We're gonna, exactly. We don't have a, a huge landfill where we can just pile up on the moon and say, hey, guys, here's all the junk that we produce today that's no good. You know, we have to think through all of the logistics of how we're going to run that space economy, how we're going to move folks. And not only that, but a lot of folks are talking about, well, how do we get out to space cheaper, quicker, faster, right? And certainly, you know, with reusable rockets, that's great. That's bringing the cost of launching down. But we have to do it even more. So people talk about space elevator and being able to get things into low Earth orbit relatively cheaply. And then it's almost like a gas station. You fill up in your LEO spot and then you fly off to wherever you need to go, right? And so there will be this whole ecosystem of space-based services that are going to be required in order for us to get from the moon and beyond just commercially, which is already happening. NASA's already kind of said hey, we, we expect the commercial entities to kind of manage that. We're going after the bigger fish, the, the really stuff that's out there, like Mars and others. And let's focus in on you know, deep space. So that's great. So now we've got commercial entities working on low Earth orbit and selling services. That You've got startups that are launching little small sats. They're selling all of their imagery for relatively cheaply because that's all becoming more and more commercialized. Back in the day, it wasn't so cheap. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and now people are sharing time on the rocket. Like, hey, I need to do my payload, you do your payload, and we're going to launch both payloads at the same time, or multiple payloads. And so it's, it's interesting, but I, I think the, the main conduit is that 
in the space economy, like we talked about before for infrastructure, we got to have all the infrastructure there for people to use, whether it's propellant that they'll be required, whether it's to gas their vehicles, whether it's materials that they'll need to build what they need to build either on the moon or other places to really kind of keep pushing that boundary of exploration. Do you see a time when that will happen? You know, it's interesting. We're working on like the 20-year and 30-year plans for like, what do we think space could look like? And and there's a lot of folks in, in this area that kind of look at, oh, well, you know what? We could actually ride asteroids for a while. And it's like, well, that's interesting. They actually think that they that we can actually produce gravity with an asteroid that's spinning fast enough to give you that whole aspect if that's what you need or desire. I think what you're seeing right now is you got folks that are working on comms for the moon. So the same way you get your Verizon or your AT&T, yeah, you'll have that set up on the moon so you can have your comms ready to go and doing whatever you need to. And so I think what we're seeing in the space as a whole is that everybody's seeing the need to, okay, well, how do we build out the infrastructure and what areas do we all specialize in? And everybody's got their own little niche. You got some people that their niche is the rockets. You got others that it's the satellites or others that it's, you know, different mission components or robotics or other types of items. And ultimately, I think it was funny. I was telling my son, I said, I hope by some point you actually get to the moon. Then I'm sure they'll even have tourism. I mean, we already have that, you know, today with what you're seeing with Blue Origin and SpaceX and Virgin Galactic, where folks are going out into space as a form of, hey, this is interesting. It's different. It's not what we're expecting. And I think what we're going to end up seeing eventually is that you may be able to go and visit the moon and There'll be a whole museum there where they laid the flag down and you can see everything about it. And we'll be able to run drones and cars and everything off the moon doing our own explorations of things. Not just ones where it's on behalf of NASA, but ones that are commercial oriented, meaning I can rent time on there and I can go be an explorer, right? And people want to have that kind of ability to see what's out there. And I mean, with the amount of population growth we we're having, we really, we have no choice. Space is the next frontier. So we have to treat it with the reverence that's required, which is to say, we got to find, you know, the next planet, the next big thing to kind of help grow our capabilities, grow the opportunities for folks. And I tell people this all the time because they always go, well, space is hard. Yeah, space is hard. But here's the thing, the impact is immeasurable to humanity. If we get it right and we do it right and we can actually explore things, I mean, I think back to, you know, Star Trek back in the 70s and 80s, I can talk on my watch just like they could talk on their transponders, right? (laughs) I can literally ask Alexa to go and, you know, run programs and do analyses for me, right? Like the idea of us interacting with computers, in fact, I was reading a Gartner study the other day. They were saying that people actually talk more to their digital assistants than they even do their own spouses. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, wow, that's crazy. But sometimes that can be true, right? Right. Because wherever I go, I, I have some digital component in my pocket, in my car, in my work, in my home, in my whatever, that it's just always readily available. It's hard not to, mm-hmm. right? And so the area of industry that we're in is one that is so awesome and so neat that everybody wants to get into it, and it's only going to benefit us all. And it's like the folks that were paving the highway system decades and decades and decades and decades ago, right? They set up what we enjoy today. 
well, what are we going to set up for the and next generation? We don't generation? even think about that, right? We don't even think about what we enjoy today in terms of the highway system. Right. We just, we just, it just, it's We just there. use it. It's the same thing with the internet. Like when I talk to my kids about, oh, I had dial up and <laughs> it would take forever to load a pit. Daddy, you're silly. You're, you don't make any sense. Yeah. They just take it for granted. And eventually we'll get to that point where space and the infrastructure will be taken for granted. But until we get that, it's something we got to go build, right? So you have really painted a, a remarkable picture of the future. And you also mentioned Star Trek and talking watches. Star Trek also had the ability to, you could vaporize and appear in different places. Tell us a little bit about what you envision for gadgets in the next 30 to 50 years in space. Yeah, you know, on, on the gadget side, we're going to have to have a whole way of communicating that's completely different than what we have today. You're just starting to see glimpses of it with AR and VR and the whole metaverse, right? I know Facebook's trying to push a lot of these components and concepts and whatnot, but it's really how do you make that experience so much more real for the end user to where it just becomes a part of them, right? It's just part of their kind of everyday living experience. And the way that I kind of look at on the gadget side is the way that my kids are interacting with iPads and AR and VR and everything else, this is just becoming intuitive to them. They're like, I can literally put my son in a VR. He's like 10 years old and he will literally go to town and he's amazing to watch. He can build things and create things and design things. And I look at that and I go, well, yeah, think about it. We do it today with our customers. We have a group called our Pulsar group that effectively recreate visualizations for our customers so they can see the finished product. They can see how it's going to run and operate. They can see how it's going to run in mission. We can run simulations and show you every aspect on how we understand the problem and what we're going to do to tackle it. And those are all critical things. But the workforce of tomorrow is learning those things today. My son's already 3D printing stuff. He's 10 years old. I'm like, I, I didn't learn that in engineering. A lot of my engineer friends haven't learned that, right? We got to go learn it because they're now teaching it in school, right? And so it's, it's how do you learn, you know, the newest and, and greatest capabilities? How do you bring that to bear? How do you engage with the, the, the STEM workforce and where they want to go with it? So, you know, Lockheed does a lot of great things. And I'll tell you about three of them. The first one is what we refer to as kind of the first group. And what they do is they do Lego leagues for like elementary school students. They do high school robotics competitions. They do some really neat things to really get folks interested in STEM. When we get them into that realm, we start doing like different competitions. So we have, we just finished CyberQuest here this last Saturday. And effectively, we had 250 students from around the world competing in cyber tests. And, you know, we talked about security before, and we know that our, our adversaries are always looking for the holes. So the way that we can best fill those holes is get the right professional talent that can help us pinpoint them and fill them and make sure that we're operating under best conditions. And then we need folks that are going to build that highway for space, which if you think about a system today, a system is just a lot of other subsystems put together. Well, how, what makes that all run? Software. So what do we have? We have a thing that we call our code quest, which actually happens at the end of April, which is for a lot of our high school students to teach them about computer programming and to get them involved in competitions. All this is to grow that base. It's to take them from when they're little all the way up because we lose so many STEM people. We lose them because either 
they just don't think they can do the job or they think it might be too hard or I just don't know what it all means. And if we don't engage with that community, we're not going to have that talent. If we don't have that talent, then infrastructure doesn't get built. It's not going to be me building the infrastructure. It's going to be our kids helping to build the real final infrastructure that's really going to be the freeway of the space community, right? And so for me, it's all about when we talk about gadgets, it's how do you interact in order to solve problems and build capability? And whether it's AR, VR, whether it's digital assistants, whether it's our digital twins for how we're going to build and operate our solutions, whether it's any of these things, they all have importance, right? They walk a path to show how we're going to actually design and engineer the future of tomorrow. And if we don't engage properly with each and every one of those students, if we lose them, we've lost our competitive edge. People always ask me, well, how does the U.S. stay competitive? I am telling you, put your dollars in STEM. Because for every engineer we build and we can go and build the greatest things, it, it has demonstrable impact on the economy, on the future of the U.S., on the security of our home space, on everything that we do. So all I can tell you is gadgets-wise, there's lots of technologies, lots of things that we're working with with students. On STEM, it's all about how do we engage with those students and get them interested and keep them interested and motivated and partner with them to grow that talent because we're going to need it to keep building the future of tomorrow. You're talking about a handoff and a tipping point where we're, we here at Lockheed Martin are spearheading all of these changes, but in the next generation is the one that's going to make those tangible and fundamental to our everyday living. Yes. Thank you for that. I've been speaking with Dr. Steve Girali, Lockheed Martin Space. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All too often, we take for granted the basic infrastructure that enables our daily lives. When we turn on a light switch or order a package online, we don't think about everything going on behind the scenes to make those things possible. In the same way, Lockheed Martin is pioneering unique technologies and new innovations to make the future of space a reality. And the future of space may not be as harmonious as we hope, as more private companies, organizations, and countries move into the ultimate high ground of space it will become more contested. So how do we keep America and its allies secure in the 21st century? We tackle that topic in our next two episodes of Spacemakers. You've been listening to Dr. Steve Turali at Lockheed Martin, and Steve is a spacemaker. Whether you're a software engineer, systems engineer, finance, or HR professional, we need spacemakers like you to make the seemingly impossible missions a reality. Please visit this episode's show notes to learn more about what you just heard in this episode or the careers available at Lockheed Martin. If you enjoyed this show, please like and subscribe so others can find us and follow along for more out-of-this-world stories. To learn more about our missions, products, and people, follow our new Twitter handle at LMSpace and visit LockheedMartin.com backslash space. Join us on the next episode as we introduce you to more spacemakers. Spacemakers is a production of Lockheed Martin Space. It's executive produced by Pavan Desai. Senior producer is Natalia Oleksik. Senior producer, writer, and host is Ben Dinsmore. Sound design and audio mastered by Julian Geraldo. 
Graphic design by Tim Rush. Marketing and recruiting by Joe Portnoy, Shannon Myers, Mallory Richardson, and Stephanie Dixon. A huge thanks to all the communication professionals at Lockheed Martin who helped make these stories possible. Thanks for joining us and see you next time. Need even more space? Subscribe to Lockheed Martin's monthly Space Scoop newsletter to get all the latest space news, fun facts, and behind-the-scenes mission updates right to your inbox. Sign up using the link in show notes, and remember to follow Lockheed Martin on social media. Hey, space fans. There's a new way to interact directly with Lockheed Martin Space and go even further behind the scenes of the technologies, missions, and people driving the future of space. We've launched a brand new Twitter handle, at LM Space, devoted fully to giving you exclusive access to the Lockheed Martin products and missions you love. Head on over to Twitter, give us a follow, and let us know what your favorite Spacemakers episode is. We'll see you in the Twitter sphere.